Hello, my name is Evan Jacobs and welcome to the Orange County Hardcore Scene Stir Aftermath podcast. These interviews are part of an ongoing series chronicling the hardcore punk music scene in Orange County, California and sometimes elsewhere. They are an addendum to the film Orange County Hardcore Scene Stir. This is a documentary I made that chronicles the 1990s hardcore punk scene. You can stream Orange County Hardcore Scene Stir on Vimeo. For $2 a month, you can watch every Anadimia film by subscribing to Anadimia Films Unlimited on Vimeo. Links for all this stuff are in each episode description. To support this podcast, please like, rate, and review it. Also, please subscribe to Anadimia Films TV on YouTube, where you can view all of these podcasts in their original video form. Okay. Um, um, that like, yeah, cause that's just a conversation, right? Like maybe I could do something like that, but if, if you're going to say like, oh, it's got to have 10 characters in multiple locations and all that stuff. It's like, no, in a week I'm going to be lucky to have an outline. So, okay. I don't know. I think I'd go, I think I'd go nuts though. Cause usually after, if I see the fourth screenplay page in a day of writing, I'm usually just drained. I don't I, I, I don't pick up steam after about that point. How long will you write in a day? Like like you know, all things being equal, because I know that you're you know, I you you would just mention about like like you know, hey, I keep pretty regular hours. So if you have the time, how long will you write in a in a day? Four hours. Gotcha. And it's well, so I'll get up in the and it's <clears throat> I am not good at doing anything all in a row. So if you sit me down at something and I'm going to start doing it and then I'm going to end like punching a clock, that's, that's not how I write. That's not how I do anything. The way I write is I get a cup of coffee and I write a little bit and then I go do this and that and come back and write. It's, I'm, that's my main focus for the period of time. So sometimes it'll be all day doing that, but usually I've got to change locations or go do something or pack up stuff that I'm selling a lot. It's do something else that means I need to get out of that headspace. What? So before the pandemic, I was getting up at almost every morning, getting up fairly early, six or seven, and going to a coffee shop and spending at least three to four hours in there writing. And then I'd be home before noon, and then the rest of the day would just be whatever work I had to do that was not writing. To try to separate my creative self from, you know... Kind of um, money getting, it, getting it out of the way so that the rest of the day... You didn't have to, like I'm saying, like it wasn't like, oh, I should be writing or, oh, like I need to write this thing. And it, it was something you didn't have to worry about. You you got it out of the way. But my question then goes to, if you're doing that that early in the morning, so let's say, you know, you do that and then noon comes, are you too drained? Like, did you find that you were too drained or did you find that, okay, wait, I got it out of me. Now I'm ready to go and take on the rest of the normal stuff. So let's say I'm writing like novel types. Let's say I'm not writing screenplay because I feel like there's two different types of writing, but I, I did a thing called um, shadow killer, which is a little novella thing that is in the wool universe. So like when I was writing that, if I got 2000 words done before noon, then I was like, Hey, that's it for the day. Knock off. Let my brain work on what I'm going to write tomorrow for the rest of the day. And for me, that's a lot of it too. sleep on something. The reason why I write in the morning is because I seem to work out problems in my sleep. You know, I'm strongest with the writing in the morning. Yeah. But 
if it got to noon and I had 500 pages on the page, I'd end up periodically writing for the rest of the day here and there because I feel like I was lagging, you know? Gotcha. So I was gotcha. trying to, I, was, I want that 2000 words kind right. of thing every day. Now, circling back to Edgar Coral, how did you cast mm-hmm. this? Um, and did you write with those people in mind only because like when I did walking between the raindrops, like I wasn't going to, I was making that as something that I was going to uh, sell. And, and actually like, yeah, it, it was just one of those things that after I wrote it, there was just like some circumstances that just led to me kind of like you guys having that aha moment of, I got to make a, I'm making a movie. Like I was like, okay, I'm going to make this. And then literally it became, well, of course, Popeye's going to play this character and Loman's going to play this character. And so was it like that for you or did you, I mean, how'd you, how'd you do it? So most of it was like this. Because it's very well yeah. casted. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, oh, but it really is. No, it's okay, I was going to do a little, little, oh, no. little, little scene here for you. Thank oh, you no, no, for no, no, saying no. that, that it's no, well but, casted. But, okay, but you need to still do the scene, but I've always wanted to tell you, like, <laughs> I was always impressed. And I remember sitting around with some people. Well, dude, I remember Doan was one of the people. I remember, like, like... Like 20 years ago, we were talking. He was like, dude, I just love that movie. And I'm like, yeah. But it was really so well, like, every, everything about it seemed to come together. But please, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I no, interrupted no, you. No, no, no. It's, it's all good. Not, mostly it was just I'd turn and be like, hey, man, you want to be in this movie? <laughs> to whatever friend was sitting there with me. Um, and and so, uh, or or I'd be in the record store and talking to those guys. I'd be like, well, you're going to be in this thing, right? And they'd be like, yeah, sure, if you ever stop talking about it, you actually do it. But the people that, that you see in Edge of Quarrel were the people in the scene at the time. So m- most of that stuff seems like real groups of friends and real groups of people because it was. And while they did not dislike each other, they did sometimes kind of look sidelong at each other across the room like, those guys aren't really our you know that's not really our scene kind of thing there were little divisions the coolest thing about it i think is that everybody seemed to like love getting together and hanging out and making the scenes and had a good time so i think that if anything even though it was a movie about these rifts between like you know punk and straight edge or whatever uh it, it made our scene much tighter you got more cross you know people coming to each other's shows and stuff and yeah so it was just the one role I think that that the the main role that Rocky Votelato plays. Um, he wasn't really a household name yet, you know. He was. We all knew he was awesome, but uh, Michael and Jerome, my longtime partner, said, "Yeah, you, you got to have Rocky in that part." She was the one that said he's the he's the guy for it. So. Now. You you have made like like I I don't know if you look at it this way just because you're like really on the inside of this thing, but, but like, I, I consider it, it is an, it is a fairly epic movie. I mean, there's a lot of scenes, there's a lot of locations, there's multiple fights with multiple huge groups of people, and, and I'm, I'm just saying, a lot can go, a lot can go wrong. Dave, no, dude, I'm not, I'm not just saying this just because I distributed and all this stuff, like, I mean this when I say this. I would put this movie up against the trifecta of decline, like not even up against it. I would put it like alongside don't even, it. Don't do that. Dude, no, <laughs> decline, Repo Man, and, and Suburbia. It is right. It is, it's a, dude, in some ways, even more so because it like, 
It's like, it mm. really is like a punk rock. Like, what I was trying to do with safety and numbers, I don't know if you saw that one, you distributed it, but I, I don't know if you saw it. Like I saw this. Well, that was, I wanted that to be kind of like my mean streets. Dude, you <laughs> achieved that with um, Educoral. And I'm just saying, for like a first film, like, dude, a two hour long, like, like, how did you coordinate all that? Without it just... I'd go to shows and I'd say, hey, I want to film this thing. Let's run outside and let's let's have a fight. You guys want to have a play fight? Let's go have a fight. Hey, you know, like all the same, but everyone was going to the shows, you know. Every once in a while I'd say, I'd say, hey, there's a show coming up. Botch is going to play at Ground Zero. So why don't we go there earlier in the day and film some scenes inside and you'll be in the same clothes that you'll be at the show at. So I do stuff like that. That took some planning, but luckily I knew the people that were like running the shows and everything you know and hey is it cool if you if i'm on stage and i film botch but then so when the show would start i'd grab those two people so sometimes you see them and there's just two people in the shot or three people in the shot then you'd see the lights go down i I did a lot of stuff like turn the lights down on a scene where we were just in an empty room and then edited that in a scene with the lights going down in the actual show and those guys walking into the crowd things like that so it seemed like i was actually filming at those places and it was bigger than it was um, but you were also dealing with uh, like big bands that were playing these these shows. Was that ever any kind of like got, a headache? Well, you were dealing they got with bigger. They got bigger after, or they were getting big during. But it didn't really start out that I was dealing with as much big. You know. Well, but I'm just thinking like, okay, wait, you're dealing with with Murder City Devils. They're about to play a show. They're legit. But was it ever, dude? And Spencer's great in that movie. Spencer, like, like, and the way that you introduced him, like, it was, it was, it, it, I'm just, like, dude, I wanted to tell you all this stuff for, like, years. I'm like, dude, he made a great movie. Like, like, it really is. I love my movie. There are things in that movie that I'm proud of. Every criticism anyone's ever said about it is valid. It's dumb. It's also wonderful. And I, I'll, I can't, there is no way that I can go only on one side of that. <laughs> I, I can't sit there and say, this thing is great. Oh, please. I, kn- I know what's wrong with that. I edited the whole thing. I, I did every <laughs> single part. I did it, right? So I know what's wrong with it more than anybody else. Um, but but at the same time, like, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I did you it. set out? I love did, it, and it's embarrassing. Did you know it was going to be two hours when you uh, did it? No. I didn't want it to be longer than two hours. Um yeah, it was too much. I, so I, you know, if I wrote Edge of Quarrel today, it wouldn't be two hours. It'd be an hour and a half, I suppose. I wouldn't write Edge of Quarrel today. I think I would prop. I have a hundred different story ideas that have never made it past the paragraph stage where I go, yeah, I'll fire that away for someday. That this, that might happen, you know. At the time, it was my, it was my big idea, and it was one I knew I could do, and never again, like. That scene did not exist ever again. It would have been a whole different thing just five years, just three years later. But, like, you captured it. Like, I, I guess that is, if you know about that scene at that time, it really makes it special because you really captured it. I was lucky. Yeah. I created, I created nothing on that front. I just used what was there. I documented the absolute magic that was going on. 
We, no, totally. Totally. And I mean, that all comes out. I, I, I guess that's just what kind of impresses me. And it's just, it's interesting how, like, how as we get older and we learn more, it's, it's interesting how, like, that sort of takes, like you just said, like, I wouldn't write that movie today. Like, 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 we sort of get taken away from, like, the very thing that kind of was the initial thing that kicked yeah. everything off. Was it in black and white for the reason that I put my first three movies in black and white? So it wouldn't look terrible? Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, it would look only terrible to a degree. Like, yeah, I didn't... The idea of, like, having the... Like, uh, lighting, it's not like there's good lighting in it, but, like, the idea that there would be problems with colors not looking the same and everything, <laughs> I had no idea. And I couldn't, like... I'd, lo I'd look at that stuff and just be like... Every single video type movie I've seen, it's in color. Just looks like garbage. But I love black and white films. I, yeah, I just wanted to make it. I want to do something like what you did. You know. Well, dude, no, that's why we did black and white. I was editing that movie. Which my next question for you is. Well, I'll just ask you now. What did you edit that that movie on? Because you were a little Maybe. bit later from the walking between yeah. the raindrops. Because we were tape to tape. Did you yep. have digital editing or no? Sort of. <laughs> oh, cool, so, cool. So Matt took took Heartbreak Beat into a place here called... Oh, he went to a place? Yeah, it wasn't exact. I did too for Edge of Quarrel, but... Uh, and he did for Heartbreak Beat, so... Or no. His second movie was called For the Cash. So the way we did this is he went to a place called... Why can't I remember the name of them? They're not they're not around here anymore. But they had uh, they taught classes on like you know uh, reel to reel video editing and stuff. And so he got to go in there and edit his movie. And so I got to watch him do that, and that was daunting. But I thought, okay, I'll, I can figure it out. I've seen Matt do it, and I've seen the movie, so I can figure this out. And then while we were starting our, he was starting for the cash, and I was starting Edge of Quarrel. This guy named Chris Hanzik who ran a studio called Hansic Audio. He was one of the guys that used to own Reciprocal, which was where like Nirvana did their record for $800 or $900 or whatever it was. Uh, I would go in and take all the, the excursion stuff in there and have him do like the digital pre-mastering for CDs and stuff. And he had gotten really into video editing. And so he said, listen, I got this Media 100 digital editing setup that I'm setting up. And it's in the recording studio. Um, it's in the recording room because that's the only place we've got space for it. But I'll make you a really good deal if you want to edit your movie on it. And so it actually used tapes. So you'd, you'd have to – I had to transfer all my high 8 tapes to Betamax XP because I had time code. So I'd, I'd transfer everything. I'd go through everything that I shot, and I'd pick the – I'd have to shot pick for what I knew would make the movie. So there's all kinds of stuff on the – high eight tapes that never made it to that. Right. Right. And then put that in. And then the, uh, the editing software would pick the time code off that. And so once you had your, it would do like a, like a kind of like a low res digitized version. And once you had that, you'd have it assemble edit and it would sit there for hours and hours and run the tape back and forth based on the time code you entered in and make a final version. And it would take, you know, eight hours. So one night I was, so he said, when you do that, just bring in a cot or there's a cot, bring in some blankets and you can just sleep and set an alarm and wake up. And so I was going in there. I had the keys to the place and the alarm code. 
I was going in there in the middle of the night whenever he didn't have bands booked and just editing. And Matt was did, doing did the same thing. Did that cost you anything to, to do that? Or was he... So it would have been... Because that took months. Like, it, I... Because I was learning everything, everything. I'd never edited a thing in my life, you know? Um, but he said, uh, he said, when it's done, pay me essentially what you think it's worth to you. I can't remember. We came to a number at the end. He said, because it's not, I'm not in here with you. I'm just letting you use my equipment and you're setting your own time. And I know that you're learning on it. And I know it's first thing. So he made it so that we could afford to do our movies. Um, I can't even remember the number it was. He got, you know, I paid him money. Yeah, no, dude. That's the only reason. That's the only reason that exists. And I mean, that was such a complicated process. I make videos for my stupid YouTube channel every day on Premiere. And it's a thousand times easier with way better features and controls. So, yeah, so the world has changed. So wait. Um, question then, and I, you'll usually, you know, <laughs> save this for the end, but, but question then. So you have premiere, you know what you're doing, you're doing all the stuff. Why have you not made another movie since Edge of Coral? And you're a writer. Like, do you just want to write? Is that, is that kind of your deal? Like, I, I, I've always wondered. Okay. I learned a whole bunch of things of, from doing Edge of Coral. One of them I learned was Edge of Coral was too big and too much of a project. Oh! <laughs> and I learned about, I guess, post-project depression. Um, and I'm not, I, I'm, I have, this isn't like a, a diagnosis that I received. I've just said that I, I, I'm saying this. This also happened with, with some other writing stuff that I did, I learned that I need to overlap my projects. I should have had another movie going before Edge of Coral was done because once that was done and I could actually exhale and get a real nice sleep, the idea of starting another project that big was so daunting. Right. And then knowing what I put into it, blood, sweat, and tears, like how much I put into it, I knew that what I had wasn't big enough to get the kind of reaction that I would need to take me through, like, you know, whatever this post-project thing was. Or and doing it, was, it again. Too. Like, like I found that, like, seeing that, seeing people watch that movie was, um, was just a crushing experience. Like, even if they were kind of enjoying it, it still was hard to deal with. Because all I could see were the, the mistakes and, and how much it wasn't what what I really wanted it to be, you know? Well, so I think I, I, I had ideas for a couple of movies that never came to fruition. Um, I wrote one. It was called The Last Goodbye. It was going to be, it was going to be a period piece set in the town I grew up in with a soundtrack completely made out of bands that I knew making fake band names that could have existed in the eighties and writing songs in the style of different bands for the eighties. So it would have been a suicide tendency style one and agent orange style one, all that stuff. It was going to be about skateboarders in Bellingham. And I was just going to do everything like that. So there you go. After edge of coral, I thought I was going to make a period piece that couldn't get off the ground. And everyone was growing up and moving on too. like, no one was going to stay in their mid twenties, like early to mid 20 and like, like do this with me again. It just wasn't going to happen. So yeah, I just never, I just never did get another movie off the ground. And so is that how you write now where you'll have multiple projects going kind of, kind of deal? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I, it feels like too many. <laughs> so I, I have numerous partially finished scripts. Um, and some of mine know why they haven't gone further. There's maybe a trip I need to take to scout a location where I, I need to, uh, I've got a really great horror film that I'm very excited about but it requires me spending a night in the town where it's set before I can move from the point I'm at. And I, Michael Aaron keeps saying, well, why don't you just, why don't you just make it up and write it? And my brain just says, no, you must go there. You must actually like, you'll get the next part once you stand in the place where it's supposed to take place. And so that one's on hold, you know, and I'm working on this other thing with James and I'm, yeah, well, I've always got uh, I've always got too many irons in the fire. You know, you you bring up something about like you know watching the movie with with an audience, and I, I don't know, maybe I've insulated myself from that just because I'm saying I put it out digitally and I sell DVDs, mm -hmm. and so I'm never really like the closest thing could be these new watch-alongs for like the Death Toilet movies that I don't know if you know about <laughs> them, but like I'm, I I do them with 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 Hartsfield and Isaac, but um, nice. but but. What I think is interesting, though, is I know that you went to the Tribeca Film Festival. I know that you had a script in the right. You had a, and I know you went to that screening. What was that like? Because that seems like that could have been the same way, or no? Yeah. Okay. I'm so into edge of course. So I wrote a thing called Big Boy. See, yeah. See, it, you right? weren't expecting me to have done my research and I and and no. paid and have paid attention and. Have, uh, <laughs> I wrote a thing called Big Boy, and it's four minutes long. Uh, depending on who you talk to, it's either a comedy or a horror, which is how I like it. Have you have you seen it? No, I. Where can I okay. see it? Where where where? Uh, it's on 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 Amazon. If you've got Prime, you should be able to watch it for free. I actually think it's up. It's probably up on YouTube for free now. Okay, cool. Um, well, I'm gonna make it. It's up. directed. It's directed by a guy named Brian Campbell. Mm -hmm. uh, search for it by his name because my name's like the most common name in the world. Gotcha. Um, so uh, it's about a kid who goes into a rest stop bathroom by himself. His dad decides it's time to let him do something for himself. He's a big boy. And he goes in there, and the minute he walks through the door, it's like every parent's nightmare of the worst things that he can encounter. In the Except it's no one's going to hurt this kid. This kid's just wide-eyed, full of wonder. He's like, and everyone's nice to him. And yeah, these situations look terrible, and maybe these people aren't the best people, but he's just a nice little kid and he talks to some of these people and he had you know and he he weaves effortlessly through this these scenarios in this men's room and then he comes out like there's nothing wrong the parents are just oblivious and they're like ah oh, see you're, you know everything's fine and it's like anyway i won't ruin the end of it it's just four minutes long but the director just knocked it out of the park he really and we met to talk about the script my friend knew him and he said i think this guy might be interested in making your script and he's one of my closest friends now, this director. He, Brian's amazing. And he got it. He just got it. And I said, look, I have some concerns. There, everyone who I think wants to possibly talk about making this thing, they want to change certain aspects of it that I think are important. I think if you, if you make this less scary for, the, for people, it doesn't work. Um, so anyway, the, scary being, you know, like, Parents watch this thing and they imagine their kid in the situation this kid's in and it's terrible. So I had at different – so I will say that the screenings of that were incredibly 
Those made me feel good as a writer. I didn't film it. I didn't act in it. I didn't edit it, right? I just wrote it. And someone did a good job making the movie. So listening to people laugh when they're supposed to and gasp when they're supposed to say stuff out loud, you know, in this theater, which usually happens when they watch it. Yeah, that made me feel like I could write more stuff. Whereas the Edge of Coral experiences made me feel like I maybe shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> so Tribeca, it got into Tribeca, it premiered there. And it was, it was really very cool to see, you know, I saw it in the Northwest with Northwest audiences, but then I saw it at that audience and same crowd reaction. People seem to like it. So 